The following episode was recorded on April 16th, 2023. y'all welcome back to the drip we are the podcast where academics of color sit around and discuss great books each episode features a free-flowing conversation about one book that leads us to a broader conversation about race culture politics all the things that keep us gabbing when we're hanging out in coffee shops or at each other's homes or when we are still each in our own homes because while we're living closer to each other now yay we are still in different cities and different uh, states and just a big shout out to all workers, including those in academia who've been organizing to fight for living wages and affordable health care. Yeah. Workers of the world unite. Yeah. Right. I am Anita Chikatur, the host for the show, and I teach in the Educational Studies Department at Carleton College. Crystal. Hey, hey, I am Crystal Moten, a public historian, curator, and writer who focuses on Black people and uncovering their hidden histories in the Midwest. Todd. I'm Todd Lawrence. I teach African-American literature and expressive culture, folklore, and cultural studies in the English department at the University of St. Thomas. Awesome. And today we are super excited to be discussing James Baldwin's Joanne's Room. And that's actually a title that I first heard of when I lived in Philadelphia because there's a bookstore named after that. And I actually didn't even know that it was a Baldwin novel so much later. So the book was published in 1956 and it was Baldwin's second novel. And it was a National Book Award finalist in 1957. It's a novel that remains relevant and controversial in many ways, right? It's sort of been put on many banned book lists in the U.S. And I think we're going to have a lot to discuss as we dig into the novel's complex portrayal of masculinity, sexuality, and desire. And before we dig in, spoiler alert, just a reminder that when we discuss our books, we will talk about everything. So as you may know, we do call ourselves the All Spoilers Collective. So consider this your perpetual, universal, all-encompassing spoiler alerts. But actually, this it's not like a huge mystery or anything. So often <laughs> listen to us and then read the book. That's totally fine. Too. Something um, does happen, though, you know. <laughs> something does happen. But interestingly, we find out the big bad thing that's going to happen kind of right away in the novel, right? That's like, true. You know, that. yes. you know page three, Giovanni's going to be executed. But I guess I wanted to start off with kind of a question that Crystal came to us with, right? This like big question that I think will maybe help us get at some of the more specific things we wanted to talk about, which is that, you know, what is kind of the essence of this book, right? Because we were chatting about, is this a book that, for example, if we changed, right, some of the characters' identities, if we changed the setting, if we changed the time, like, would it still work, right? Like, what is what is the work that this novel is doing at its essence, yeah. And, you know, I'll go ahead and start um, because I think my thoughts on this are undeveloped and I really want to be I want to learn from uh, you, you all spoilers. And so um, I struggle with what the essence of this book is, was, continues to be. And I think partially I struggle because of, number one, who James Baldwin is and then also the reputation and meaning and significance of this book kind of precedes itself. Mm -hmm. And so when you when I took all of that into play, I was like, okay, yeah, I see all of those things. But for me, what am I coming away with as the as what the essence of this book is? And I think um, one of the things I began to think about is, you know, maybe it's essences in the plural. And then also I know about myself as a reader that I really am into plot 
And so mm-hmm. one of the things about this particular book is that um, for me, the plot just wasn't hitting it, you know. And so then, I mean, that kind of made me think, OK, if for me, the plot isn't hitting it, what else about this book is hitting it? And so I began to think about, you know, the specific characters. I began to think about the specific time and place. Um, I began to think about, you know, again, situating the characters in their particular geographical chronological, racial, identity-based context. And then all of that began to be like, okay, this is why this book means so much to so many people. Um, And so, yeah, so the essence of this book to me is, of course, a story around a person um, struggling to both um, accept who they are in terms of their sexuality, but then also communicate that to those around them, right? So that's that's part one essence of the book. The other, I think, essence of the book also grapples with, you know, what happens within communities in terms of how they oppress them, oppress each other and themselves, and how even within communities there is this violence that happens among people that lead people to protect and defend themselves in in ways that, you know, sometimes become really, really hard to accept, understand, and grapple with. Um and so I think of I think about, you know, all of that. I think then about kind of this understanding of the relationship, especially for black folks between like Paris and the United States and the civil rights movement. And I need to mute myself because a truck is coming down my street. So I'm going <laughs> to stop right there. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. Uh, I think those are like some really, really great uh, questions and points. And um, I-, I was thinking of, you know, as you were talking my own experience of rereading the book and you know because of i've read so much james baldwin and i've thought a lot about james baldwin Mm -hmm. it's hard to reread this book this time and keep having to keep remind myself that these uh characters are white because i just sort of like Mm -hmm. automatically fell into like thinking of them as black because i knew that it was i was holding a book with james baldwin's name on the front cover and there's nothing about the characters you know the way that they speak or the interactions that they're having with each other that would suggest that but it's just like the power of his public essence and what i know about him and his you know importance as a as a figure in the black community that kind of like did that you know so that's something to think about so i think this book in a lot of ways like this is a second novel it was pretty courageous of him to write this book for a a couple of reasons number one because it has all white characters number two because it deals with uh, a queer subject matter same-sex desire and the truth is like the history of the publication of the book is like Knopf was his publisher and they didn't want the book. They didn't want to publish it. And he had to take it somewhere else. He took it. I think it was a dial press that actually that finally published it. Mm. Um, but they were basically telling him like, this will ruin your career. You know, this is mm-hmm. you, you'll uh, alienate yourself from the, from the audience that made you, you know, who you are with, from the first book, go tell it on the mountain. And I think, you know, like from B- Baldwin's perspective, what you said, Crystal is right that he wanted to tell a story about someone who was having difficulty accepting themselves for who they were, which we also know is like something that Baldwin struggled with himself, right? Mm-hmm. And he also, I think, wanted to tell a story about love. I think all of his novels in one way, way or another are about love. Mm-hmm. They're about what it means to love, what it means, to, like what kind of sacrifice love requires what is the power of love to both change us, exalt us, but also to even destroy us, you know, that that sort of power that it has. 
And we see that here in this novel with these actually more than one character, but I'm thinking specifically about David and Giovanni and David not being willing to give in to the love that he feels for this other person. He definitely feels it, but he's just trying to deny it. And it, it is, you know, it makes it so that this room that they find themselves in outside of Paris becomes like a prison to him instead of a place where they're both free to engage in, in pleasure and to love each other and to be together in, in the way that they maybe can't be anywhere else, you know? Yeah, I, lo- I love that. Um, I'm sorry, Anita. I love um, uh, where you started, Todd, in terms of just automatically falling into kind of the narrative that the characters could be Black, because I think that is what it, it kind of was, what I was feeling as well, that, you know, without any direct description of the characters could the characters be any race right because I just think James Baldwin's writing was such that you so automatically just fall into what he's setting up that it's just like I mean for me all my my um you know my standard characters in my mind are always black and so any book is going to have black characters unless the author tells me that there otherwise right and so that that's kind of how I was feeling too in terms of reading this it's like well I only know they're white because I talked with my friends before reading this and they told me that these characters were white but had I been reading this prior they just would have my imagination is always in black so mm. is this strange although interesting oh, like oh sorry like, no you go ahead like the first paragraph he sort of lays that out though right because he says he's like right the guy like David's face is standing and he says my reflection is tall, perhaps rather like an arrow. My blonde hair gleams. Mm-hmm. My face is like a face you've seen many times. My ancestor, this, and this is like where I think is actually interesting that it's like a black writer writing about a white character. And mm. I was like, I don't know that a white writer, this next line, like a white writer in the 1950s would have written it because he says, my ancestors conquered a continent pushing across that laden plains until they came to an ocean which faced away from Europe into darker paths. And I was mm-hmm. like, Ooh, right. That is like a black writer writing a white character, right? Because then mm-hmm. it has kind of like yeah, that's good uh, awareness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? like, so mm-hmm. a white a black writer who's more aware of what whiteness means than any white writer. There right? you go. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So like, yeah. I do think it's like interesting to like think about the fact that and and you know that's good. Oh, we're we're not you you muted yourself, Anita. Somehow you were like going off you were all so passionately. Anita, you were oh, you were into <laughs> Anita. I want to know what you <laughs> said. Yes. No, I was just saying like I think it's sort of like it doesn't necessarily like come up all the time, right? The whiteness, which is why mm-hmm. I think it's easy to forget. Right? Yes, it's easy to forget that David's not white. Yeah, I was like he sets up up in this like first line with that, and I was like, ooh, and <laughs> yeah. like that is to me like super interesting. Uh, but I do, I mean, I agree with you, Todd, though. Like, I do think it's about love, and I do think yeah. it's about all the things that get in the way of love, right? And, mm-hmm. like, in this novel, which is why I think, like, I was so struck by it. It's just, like, all these things that get in the way of David, like, loving both Gianni, but also Helga, right? I feel mm-hmm. like I was like, oh, sh-, like, it's <laughs> just, like, so sad to be, like, the whole thing. But it's also, like, what is, you know, this idea of, like, what happens, like, within communities when there's, like, so much sort of, like, structural violence and oppression yes. and discrimination that you're dealing with right, right? so that it's like the horizontal playing out of like violence and oppression when you're like thinking about right sort of the fact that even in paris right and and that's just like where the setting maybe matters is that homosexuality wasn't illegal mm-hmm. right like it was in the u.s but mm-hmm. clearly it's not accepted and it's not like celebrated it's not 
right? Like there's still kind of like this way in which they are like ghettoized, right? There's like the queer bar that they all go to and like, you know, Mm -hmm. but even in there, like they're kind of like calling each other out for being like not manly enough and right, like there's kind of all that stuff around like masculinity. Yeah. So I do think that it's like, yes, right? It's like sort of this like really sort of sad story, but it's also sad because of like the context that they're in, right? Like would David be a different person if like he lived in 2023? I don't know. I, I think he would be a different person, but I also, and this is why I, I just, just feel like this book is so universal in the sense mm. that again, like he would definitely be a different person, right? Because just context, everything is different. Um, But I don't want us to kind of like think that, you know, 2023 is to like this is land of freedom from oppression, right? Especially if you think about other places around the globe where um, uh, queer identity and queer desire and queer relationships are still violently denied. And so... I mean, here too, right? With all the anti-trans legislation. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so... um, No, that's a good point. Yeah. I was thinking about that in terms of the universality of, of this. That's true. Well, I mean, I think that you can, I mean, this is one thing that I think about with this book in terms of of race, and maybe this is related to what you were saying, Crystal, which is that although the way that oppression operates in this book is not the same as it operates in in sort of racial schemas, we do see some similarities, right? We see the way that that race can become a thing that someone becomes embarrassed about or that is frustrating for them or that they don't want to perform in a particular way. I mean, I, I think it's I think it's like interesting to think about this book as a passing novel, for example, um, mm. that, you know, that what David is doing is trying to mm. pass for heterosexual when he mm. is not. He is something other than that. Right. Mm. And, you know, Helga's the whole time, like sort of like, hmm, this seems like hmm. Is something you know this doesn't seem quite right you know and and then even whenever he finally finally confesses to her because she sees him with this sailor um because he's sort of like he he does this a couple times where he just like involuntarily sort of blows things up right and she sees him with this sailor and he finally um, confesses and she says to him i knew the whole time you know I, i knew the whole time and i think that that's you know a big part of this is like when you know you know but what do we do to uh, not allow ourselves to like accept what it is that we know, whether it's about ourselves or whether it's about somebody else, you know? Yeah, I was trying to find where they have that conversation. So keep going. I'm going to try to find that because I thought that was just like one of the more heartbreaking <laughs> sort of like moments, right? Yeah. It's just like. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think I- I'm going to come back to some to and have some other comments about um, Crystal's first question or first comments. But I think, you know this element is one of the most emotionally kind of fraught parts of the novel for me or aspects of the novel for me is it is like super traumatizing and just awful to see what people do to each other in this novel in the effort to protect themselves. And, you know, sort of like, yeah, it's, it's like, it's sort of like uh, I don't know. This is not a very good analogy. It's like it's like gun culture in, in the United States. Like in order to pre- protect myself, I need to be prepared to kill everybody else. You know, yeah. and and that's kind of like what you have here, which is you know, in order to pre- protect myself, I'll lash out against other people. I will hurt them, even though I know that that's not productive and it's not something I even want to do. Um, and maybe become something that I can't even stop myself from doing. 
And I think, you know, thinking about um, the characters of Jacques and Guillaume and the other characters, you know, in that kind of queer um, community of uh, Paris, David has, he's disgusted by them. Mm -hmm. Um, And he judges them partially because, um, like with Jacques and Guillaume, but Jacques in particular, because he sees them as exploiting other people who who have less power than them, less money than them, et cetera, for their own pleasure. But the question is like, is David doing something different? Like, isn't he doing the same thing? I mean, in a, in a slightly different way. You know, I think they all talk at various times in the novel about, you know, why they're behaving the way that they are. And they often attribute it to like, I think you guys are suggesting this, like, you know, pressures that come from the larger society, or the, the fact that they have to, you know, live in the shadows. They have this place where it's like one of the only places where they can kind of like be who they are. But at the same time, they ridicule each other for doing that, even within those spaces. And I think David does all those same things, right? Like he sees himself as sort of being above it and being morally superior, but he's not, you know, he's... And maybe it's worse, right? I I feel like that's... um, So so I didn't find that how... And it's not Helga, sorry, Hella. I might have said Helga if I said Helga. I might have said it too. But this is 137 when like she's back and then he goes to see Giovanni like after he's lost his job. Uh, It's 137 in my version of it. I don't know. And it says... um, So like he finds like Giovanni like crying, right? And then uh, Giovanni says, I have never reached you. You have never really been here. I don't. I do not think you've ever lied to me, but I know that you have never told me the truth. Why? Sometimes you were here all day long and you read or you opened a window or you cooked something and I watched you. And you never said anything. And you looked at me with such eyes as though you did not see me. All day while I worked to make this room for you. I said nothing. I looked beyond Giovanni's head at the square windows which held the feeble moonlight. What are you doing all the time? And why do you say nothing? You're evil, you know? And sometimes when you smiled at me, I hated you. I wanted to strike you. I wanted to make you bleed. You smiled at me the way you smiled at everyone. You told me what you told everyone. And you tell nothing but lies. What are you always hiding? And do you think that I don't know when you made love to me, you were making love to no one? No one or everyone, but not me certainly. I was nothing to you, nothing. And you bring me fever, but no delights. Mm. Right? So this, yeah. Right. And I feel like Hella kind of says the same thing a little bit later. Right. This idea of like, you know, and this is um, 161. And she says, and he, uh, right. And they're like arguing about, well, I guess kind of about Giovanni. And she says, you know, what's the matter, David? What do you want? I don't know. I don't know. What is it that you're telling me? Why don't you tell me the truth? Tell me the truth. I turned and faced her. Hella, bear with me. Bear with me a little while. I want to, she cried, but where are you? You've gone somewhere and I can't find you. If only you'd let me reach you, right? And I just feel like like both of them, right, are sort of basically wanting him to like literally just be there, right? Be present, be there, like see them. Mm-hmm. And I feel like he's not able to do that with either of them, right? That he's yeah. sort of is like so in his head about all these other things and he's so in his head maybe about not like what's the right thing to do that like mm-hmm. in some ways he fails both of them, right? That it's yeah. like literally he can't love because he's like, thinking about i don't know <laughs> well, I mean, I, yeah i think that re- yeah that relates to uh, todd and what you were just saying in terms of how um david kind of judges all of these people for doing uh, you know for um mistreating you know folks in their community and and you know the question is you know but david is just as guilty and culpable and my thought was that yeah because he's doing it to himself like he's not 
his inability to see both Hella and Giovanni is that he can't see himself. And not only can he not see himself, he is purposefully not seeing himself. He's purposely denying who he is. And so the impact of that is that if you if you deny who you are, then you're not being who you are. And you can't expect people to not see that and not feel that, especially when you set yourself up in such intimate proximity to people. People will, will see that, oh, you're here, but you're you're not here. The essence of who David is was not there for either one of them because he he struggled with that. He wasn't right. Because you know, he didn't have that for himself. himself. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I th- and I think I think this is really great to talk about. And I don't think that it is something that is specific to David because he's queer. Right. Because that's a, it, th- this is like, I think this is like a condition of American masculinity mm. and maybe just Western masculinity in general. Because, you know, when I think about that, not wanting to surrender yourself, not wanting to be in your feelings and emotions. I mean, so much of what David does in the novel is what the same kind of things that I've sort of struggled with as a as a man in my life, you know, where my partner was like, I just want you to feel something, you know, and I'm like, I don't feel anything. Anything at all. <laughs> I'm a man. <laughs> Nothing hurts me. Totally impermeable. And that's Can't why I have be... 50 guns. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, right? But and I think like I think back to the to the early the early story with um, David as a teenager when he has this, you know, short um, relationship with this boy, Joey. Right. And it's kind of it very much mirrors or reflects the later relationship with Giovanni. But like they basically sleep together one time and David panics. He panics like he even though you do. And this is the thing, like every time. That David is with a, a man. Well, certainly with Joey and, and Giovanni, this is true. Baldwin will give us will show will give us a little bit of the pleasure. We'll understand that there's pleasure in this um, union between these two men, right? Um, but then immediately we will see very viscerally that David is afraid. David is frightened by it. He he yep. he's so disturbed by it mm-hmm. by his own pleasure that he has to escape. And, you know, it's the it's it's Joey's bedroom that he has to escape from first. And then, of course, that when he sees him again, he has to engage in some kind of bullying to further separate himself from the pleasure that he felt with this this boy. And Giovanni, it's the room, right? Like it's he got to get out of that room. Right. But at first, the room is like this safe place. It's a place for their love. It's a place that Giovanni's trying to build for them. He's always he's constantly tinkering with it. He's constantly like pull, pulling the bricks out to make it better and build a bookshelf and blah, 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 blah. But it, at some point, you know, David's like, oh my God, is this where, am I going to be here for the rest of my life? Because right. his own pleasure, his own, like who he is sexually, his own identity, he sees as a trap. Right. He experiences right. it as a trap that he cannot get out of because it's not what, it might be what he wants on some level, but he doesn't want what he thinks the world doesn't want. Right. And so he can't accept that, right? Yeah. Um, like, literally, also, the whole time he's with Giovanni, right, he's, like, waiting for Hella to come back and, like, answer his question about marriage, right? Like, that whole thing was, like, in there. But I wanted to go back to the Joey thing, because, like, he, you know, he does kind of talk about literally the frame, and this is eight and nine in mine. And he says, um, 
Joey's body was brown, was sweaty, the most beautiful creation I had ever seen till then. I would have touched him to wake him up, but something stopped me. I was suddenly afraid. Perhaps it was because he looked so innocent lying there and with such perfect trust. Perhaps it was because he was so much smaller than me, and my own body suddenly seemed gross and crushing, and the desire which was rising in me seemed monstrous. But above all, I was suddenly afraid. It was born in on me. But Joey is a boy. I saw suddenly the power in his thighs and his arms and his loosely curved fists. The power and the promise and the mystery of that body made me suddenly afraid. So yeah, absolutely around, right? This idea of like Joey is a boy, like, and right, like in his repulsion at his own desire, right? This mm-hmm. idea of like his body and his desire being monstrous, like that's mm-hmm. a pretty vivid, <laughs> like we would be to like think about it, right? Like, that, the like, thing that gives you the most, like that makes you feel pleasure and love and connection and beauty is also this thing that you are disgusted by because you're so afraid of it yeah. mainly, right? Yeah. It's it's really, that's there's nothing sadder than that. Uh, the next sentence is after that um, says, that body suddenly seemed the black opening of a cavern in which I would be tortured till madness came, in which I would lose my manhood. And mm-hmm. so tying this directly right to the, 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 the point we were making earlier about masculinity, right? And how um, this inability to accept you know, this queerness that he feels and how that connects to his beliefs about manhood and masculinity and that being an essential and crucial part of his rejection of his desire, because that was somehow, quote unquote, make him less than a man, which I read as, uh, um, you know, something that society is is inflicting upon him, even though, you know, right. it doesn't say that. But yeah, and on page 10, I kind of say, right, he sort of makes up a story about going out with a girl. And then he says, I picked up with a rougher, older crowd and became very nasty to Joey. And the sadder this made him, the nastier I became. Mm. And I was like, ooh. Mm. Right? And I feel like it's like similar maybe with like Giovanni, right? This idea of like, in some ways, right? Like when his life starts to fall apart because he gets hired and all of yeah. that. Right? But actually like David is like more cruel, right? Yep. And, like sort of cr- crueler um, at that moment when he's kind of at his lowest, right? So I think it's kind of this like pattern about... Yeah sort of like can be repulsed by his own desire right it's a defense mechanism right right? yeah right right and you find yourself doing these things that you know are wrong and that you know are painful to other people but you got to protect yourself right because you're you're going to be down there if it's if it's not if it's not them it's you right Right? that's exactly it yeah strike strike them before they strike me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and i so if i can sort of make a little bit of a transition i want to um, just go back to answering that original question <laughs> and the comment that and really the comment that you made crystal where you were talking about the plot and you're right i mean there's virtually no plot here i mean there's a little bit of plot mm-hmm. um it's mostly dialogue internal monologue right you know and narration yep and it's mm-hmm. it's a first person narration but i think like the thing that is so compelling about it is the language and is the the way that even when it's just David's voice describing something or whatever, thinking about something, the depth at which you get this these descriptions, these this thinking about stuff, this I mean everything that happens. I mean just just even I I I don't have anything queued up right now, but um, Anita usually finds anything that I start talking about. She finds it really quickly for me but even like the descriptions of of paris and um when he's talking about you know being an american in paris or what it means to be 
um, French or, you know, just these sort of things that mm -hmm. I think only a person who had lived, an American who had lived in Paris could really say. I think he, he wrote a essay that I think would have been published before this book. And I can't remember the title of it, but it's basically about like what it is to, to be an American in Paris. And he basically sort of talks about, uh, this is Baldwin, he talks about like how you can never really, like you have to be from somewhere else to really see a place, right? Mm -hmm. Or you have to leave your own place to be able to, to see it, right? Yeah. To understand it. And so, I mean, there's a way in which his, his ability to see and describe Paris as a place and the people who are there even goes, is, is even more powerful than, you know, a, a native French person or Parisian or whatever. It just, I think his eyes, you know, it's the thing about Baldwin that I always say to my students is like, Baldwin literally has these giant eyes and it's like, they're just like a metaphor for his ability to, to be able to see and write and describe to you in this amazing way right. that makes you see it the way that he sees it, you know? Yeah. And I think the fact that they're both foreigners, right? Both Giovanni mm -hmm. and David mm -hmm. are sort of like foreigners. Um, so this isn't about Paris, but I'm just thinking about, right? Like part of what's like, like I think so compelling about this novel is just this like beautiful language, right? Mm -hmm. And like the ways in which he describes things. And this is one of the descriptions he has of like the actual room. Mm -hmm. And this is on 87. And he's kind of talking about how there's like all this disorder, right? So there's like, so he says, um, you know, red wine hasn't spilled on the floor. It's been a lot to dry and made the air in the room sweet and heavy. But it was not the room's disorder, which was frightening. It was the fact that when one began searching for the key to this order, one realized that it was not to be found in any of the usual places. For this was not a matter of habit or circumstance or temperament. It was a matter of punishment and grief. I don't know how I knew this, but I knew it at once because I knew I wanted to live. And I stared at the room with the same nervous, calculating extension of intelligence and of, and of all one's forces, which occurs when engaging a mortal in an unavoidable danger. At the silent room, walls of the room with its distant, archaic lovers trapped in an interminable rose garden and the staring windows, staring like two great eyes of ice and fire and the ceiling, which lowered like the clouds out of which fiends have sometimes spoken and which obscured, but failed to soften its malevolence behind the yellow light, which hung like a diseased and undefinable sex in its corner. I'm like, whew, right? Just like, you know, like that's like a paragraph, you know, whatever, a paragraph or page. And it's just like the way he writes about everything, right? And it's just like such a compelling way uh, that he describes things, right? So like, so yes, right? Like nothing really happens. And I feel like some of the parts of the plot are also kind of fantastical, right? In terms of even just like how the murder maybe went down. But it doesn't even matter, right? Because that's not actually the point in some ways right the point wasn't the plot the point is like david the characters but also just like how do we even describe like the lives that we live and like how do we describe just like the spaces that we inhabit todd you're muted thank you it's good because i just uh, cleared my throat too that's why i <laughs> muted it um none of none of baldwin's novels would i say have you know compelling plots mm. This is not to say like they're not like they're they don't have plots or they're you know, but the plot's not the thing, mm -hmm. and they you know like in uh, another country in another country, <laughs> like the the what the main character dies in like the first the third of the book right like he's just gone right gone. and you're like what the what mm. and but it's not that's not that's, that's not what it's about mm. it's like 
when people talk, it's everything that everybody says about him once he's gone. It's the how people, how the other characters react to each other and turn to each other or turn away from each other because of this person's um, absence, yeah. you know, and that's where the real power of the novel is. And, and I think that's true of, you know, all of his novels. And this one is, is no different. You know, I just think like you, you said that it, there's such power in his descriptions, but I mean, I was, I was just looking when uh, David first meets Giovanni and he's having he's basically like having this conversation with Jacques about Giovanni. Mm-hmm. And it's like so it's Giovanni's words. So, I mean, uh, Jacques words. You know, this is Jacques on page uh, this is on page 57. And he's telling him about like, OK, you're essentially this is happening to you. And of course, David is denying it. Right. Like everybody in the bar can see that right. like, David and Giovanni are like, this is clicking. Right. <laughs> like, right. This, this is happening. And David's like, what? Nothing's happening. What are you talking about? Like, I'm just, what? I'm just having a drink. And and um, Jacques says to him, actually, they're talking about love affairs. And I'll just start. He says, uh, I'll start down at the bottom of the previous page. I don't understand him. I said at last. I don't know what his friendship means. I don't know what he means by friendship. Jacques laughed. You don't know what he means by friendship, but you have a feeling he may not be safe. You are afraid it may change you. What kind of friendship have you had? I said nothing. Or for that matter, he continued, what kind of love affairs? I was silent for so long that he teased me saying, come on, come out, come out, wherever you are. And I grinned, feeling chilled. Love him, says Jacques, with vehemence. Love him and let him love you. Do you think anything else under heaven really matters? And how long at the at the best can it last? Since you are both men and still have everywhere to go, only five minutes, I assure you, only five minutes and most of that, alas, in the dark. And if you think of him of them as dirty, they will be dirty. They will be dirty because you will be giving nothing. You will be despising your flesh and his. But you can make your time together anything but dirty. You can give each other something which will make both of you better forever. If you will not be ashamed. If you will only not play it safe. He paused watching me and then looked down to his cognac. You play it safe long enough, he said in a different tone. And you'll end up trapped in your own dirty body forever and forever like me. And he finished his cognac, wringing his glass slightly at the bar to attract the attention of Madame Clotilde. So this is actually like in the morning right. after. Yeah. But like, OK, not just what he said, which is totally true. It speaks directly to what we've been talking about, about David and his feeling of being trapped and all of that. And the fact that he himself, because he's denying his own self, will create this situation in which his body will become like this disgusting husk that which he can have no pleasure. Right. But the way that he says it, the way that he says it, and this is, this is Jacques, like who David thinks is a disgusting old lech, but Jacques is basically saying, don't become me. Don't become, this is what the world will do to you. This is what the world will do to you. And if you allow yourself to be, you know, sort of um, pushed into this by the way that you think that the world sees you, this is what will happen to you. You'll become, you'll become me, the thing you despise. Oh, that was a good pass. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. And I was also um, kind of related to that, right? Like his like last conversation with Hella, this was 163. And he says, um, if I was lying, I wasn't lying to you. I mean, I was lying to myself. Mm-hmm. Oh, said Hella. I see. That makes everything different, of course. I only mean to say, I shouted, that whatever I've done to hurt you, I didn't mean to. And it's just like, 
so interesting, right? Because he understands that. He understands that mm-hmm. it's like him not being able to be fully truthful about who he is, right? And that sort of basically means that he's like taking it out on like the people that he wants to love, I think, right? And wants to sort of uh, do that, but like he's not able to. But I was, and I think that's like kind of like Jack's point too, right? He's kind of like, if you don't do this, right? If you like don't go into this, not worrying about what's going to happen and not worrying about being afraid, like you'll end up like me, but he does end up like him in a different way, right? I mean, I guess we don't know what's going to happen to him after, but. Um, I mean, I suppose there's some hopefulness in the end that maybe if he realizes this, that he can change uh, or that he can some way, you know, allow himself to be who he is. But we also know that this is the 1950s and in Paris and the United States, you know, so, so many places in the world will not allow him to do that without having to pay a price. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what he's going to have to do is to be himself in the face of all these other terrible pressures that are trying to get him not to be himself, you know? But I think, you know, like the way that some of, at the end, you know, where he's he's in this house in the south of France that he's left in all alone, and there's only this woman across the street, the the landlord who keeps coming and checking on him or whatever. And he's, he's cleaned up the house and now he's taking a, he's taking a bath, I think. And he's, t- he takes a bath and he gets out and there's a mirror, you know, and he says the body in the mirror forces me to turn and face it. And I look at my body, which is under sentence of death. It is lean, hard and cold, the incarnation of a mystery. And I do not know what moves in this body, what this body is searching. It is trapped in my mirror as it is trapped in time and it hurries towards revelation. And then you get this this biblical passage, right? When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And then he says, I long to make this prophecy come true. I long to crack that mirror and be free. I look at my sex, my troubling sex, and wonder how it can be redeemed, how I can save it from the knife. The journey to the grave is already begun. The journey to corruption is always already half over. Yet the key to my salvation, which cannot save my body, is hidden in my flesh. And right before the passage you read, like, right, because he's going back and forth between kind of like imagining what's happening to Giovanni and his execution. And like right before the part you read about the body in the mirror, it says, um, uh, he knows that beyond the door, which comes so deliberately closer, the knife is waiting. That door is the gateway, which he has stopped so long out of this dirty world, this dirty body, mm-hmm. right? Because like there's sort of speculation from him that like maybe Giovanni kind of did that because he knew he was going to be punished. He knew mm-hmm. he was going to kind of be killed. And like that was sort of like his desperate move out of mm-hmm. kind of the situation that he was in. Um, so like, and I think like also he's imagining that there's like a priest there, right? Like at his execution and like, hence the biblical references. So I feel like it's ambivalent in terms of whether he thinks that he can be redeemed. I think, I don't know. Cause well, it says like later on, it says, I must believe that the heavy, gra- that the heavy grace of God, which has brought me to this place is all that can carry me out of it. Right. So that means that, I mean, that I think it's so, so strange and interesting that and this is very this is very baldwinian is that you turn back to like faith and belief Mm -hmm. right as this as the solution 
Because, like, when we read the book, I'm assuming that, I mean, this is the way I'm reading the book, is that the salvation or the the the, the way of being saved is to actually face the body in the mirror, right? Like, to actually face and accept it for what it is and to not try to escape it, right? Like, you can't, you can't look away from the mirror. You have to look in the mirror. Um, but also he's saying like the key to my salvation is in my body itself. Um, but also it's like, it's, it's something that is, I thought it was like the grace of God or something, right? Like that is, is the source. So you have to have this faith. You have to have this source. I mean, it harkens back to, it harkens back to the very end of go tell it on the mountain where, you know, the young John Grimes is like after this night this dark night of the soul where he's, he's been, he's finally been saved. He says to, you know, one of the characters, he says, you know, like, just remember that I was there, you know, whatever you hear about me in the future. And he's having like these sort of like nascent kind of feelings of same sex desire. And so he knows that his life is going to be, or he, he anticipates that it's going to be a life away from the church in the way that this particular church wants his life to, to sort of unfold. And so he says, whatever happens to me, just remember that I was there. I was on, I was at the mountaintop. Remember that and tell everybody, you know? So I feel like it's a very similar ending to the book in that it requires God. And it also, um, it also acknowledges that the path of the character is, is not going to be directly towards heaven, right? (laughs) Like it's like, it's, there's, there's going to be meandering. There's going to, but, but that, this kind of God that he is making an appeal to is the kind of God who, who saves queer people too. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I think I see that in those last lines. Yeah. Um, and maybe this is sort of a good segue. Cause I think one of the things we wanted to talk about is like, if, and how do we read this as a queer novel? Right. And obviously the fact that I'm using the term queer is also very 2023, uh, right? And kind of thinking about, right. And I think there's like differences in how we use that now than in the fifties, but a lot of the descriptions of the book kind of talk about it as kind of a frank, frank uh, depiction, right? Of sexuality generally, but also like bisexuality specifically, right? And it tends to be right one of the books that's like listed on like, you know, the top LGBTQ books. So kind of thinking about how did we read that? And, you know, and one of the things maybe that, potentially troubling is like that David is so conflicted right about his like queerness and sort of about his desire right for other men and I don't know Todd if you wanted to share kind of what you were telling us about just how Baldwin sort of you know sort of did or didn't talk about his own sort of sexuality yeah um I mean he he wrote about it more later in his in his life than earlier and he was asked about it on a number of occasions and it seems to me like that he often tried to avoid being maybe pigeonholed or, you know, to, to be sort of um, stuck in any particular slot. I don't know. And I'm not, you know, like I by no means have uh, comprehensive knowledge of every interview that he ever did or every time he ever talked about this, but I'm not aware of, of there being an interview where he basically says, Hey, look, I'm a gay man and this is like my reality or whatever or I'm a gay black man, like very rarely did he, was he that sort of direct in speaking about it. And I don't know if it's because he thought it was a private thing or because it was still something that he knew would be misunderstood by a wider audience or that he didn't want to think of himself as being like, I'm just this or I'm just that. 
he often said something like, I've loved women and I've loved men and I just, I want to love whoever I love or something like that, right? And I think he was criticized. I mean, like he's he's at the height of his popularity and power when the gay rights movement is happening, right? In the late 60s, early 70s, like that's when he's doing his writing and he's the most well-known, but he's not really on the, you know, the front lines of that movement. He is on the front lines of the civil rights movement, but not of that movement. And I think there were some folks that were a, a little bit resentful of him for that, you know, that he didn't sort of stand out, up more. And, you know, why that is, I, I don't know if I can answer that question other than I think, you know, he was conflicted about it as would be understandable. Um, but I do, I will say that like his last novel, Just Above My Head, is that book has some of the most beautiful scenes of men being uh, having sex, you know, being with each other. And I, I, we, I was mentioning this before to you guys, and I, I was, I'm reluctant to use the word explicit. I, I want to just use maybe a word like frank mm-hmm. or honest. Mm-hmm. And it's really about, par- partially that book is about a, a, ma- a young man discovering his sexuality and discovering the pleasure and the possibility of love with another man. And it's just like, it's so beautiful, you know? Like I, I read it a long time ago, some of those scenes, I read that book and some of those scenes, which I would not say at the time that I first read the book that I was like super enlightened necessarily, but it just sort of jumped out at me even at that moment that, oh my God, this is this is like about love. Like this is about being accepted like what it really feels like when you're with someone, even if it's like early in the relationship or something, but when you both kind of surrender to each other in a way that, you know, you're not going to feel bad about it afterwards. <laughs> you know, you know what I'm saying? Like um, that's, that's nurturing, that's caring where you say, I won't let you fall. You won't let me fall. It's okay. Whatever happens here is okay. Like that's the kind of stuff that's in that book, which is not really in this book in the, to this that same extent there are flashes of it you know and there of course is what giovanni is trying to get david Mm -hmm. to to accept right to embrace he's trying to tell him and and jacques is trying to tell him you know like just love him but he's so afraid that later like in terms of when the book itself oh yeah yeah it's it's published 1979 Uh it's set like in the 70s -hmm. So yeah, it's very, very much later. It's set in the United States. It's in New York City. Yeah. Um, but it also, it actually, some of those scenes take place in the South. So basically it's like a, mm-hmm. there's a, a singing group of four boys who go on a tour of the South um, singing gospel music and they stay in hotel rooms together. And so like two of the boys have a, an affair. Yeah, but it's beautiful, you know, so yeah. anyway. I was, I just want to, chime in and say a couple of things in terms of your question, Anita, about this being a queer book. Um, so thinking about this as both a queer book as a, and then also we also on our podcast talk a lot about, about queering as a verb, right? And so I want to think, want to think about both of those. But then I was also thinking about this book in terms of, you know, how when we talk about Black writers and them writing um, either with or without a white gaze as a way to kind of think about the story and how the story is being crafted. And so I was thinking about uh, applying that same type of structure to this in terms of a queer book being written outside of a heterosexual gaze. Mm-hmm. And to me, 
And thinking about the answer to that question to me is no, because it's David who brings the heterosexual gaze to the book that then is structuring how he is living his life. And so I was just thinking about those those kind of ways of thinking about um, writing. That's a great point. I think that's a great point. And I think that that means that this book, if we want to think about it as a queer book, which a lot of people do, right, or LGBTQ book, it's a different kind of book, right? right. It's a book that represents or that um, that shows us the power of um, homophobic society right. to destroy yeah. Yeah. or to put this like uh, pressure, this really, really heavy weight mm-hmm. on relationships within a community that's trying to survive and trying to find like the the true sense of relationships that they can have with each other, the way that yeah. it breaks in. And we see that. I mean, that's why, you know, I, as somebody who teaches, you you guys know, know this too, probably. If you teach African-American literature, if you teach other kinds of uh, literature by marginalized people, you you talk about that a lot. You read about that a lot, right? Um, when, when black people are, are unable to keep out uh, white supremacy out of their relationships, out of their, um, their communities, like so much of African-American literature is about that, right? right. The struggle. Yeah. It's a struggle. And then when you yeah. get these books where, you know, that where white people aren't even in it somehow or that that's sort of kept out and you're like, oh, oh, <laughs> you know, it's like some kind of a beautiful gift. Right. But it, it's not. But I feel like we need the range. Right. I mean, actually, uh, Todd, when you were talking about how beautiful the description is, I was thinking about like, I think one of the couples that's talked about in the Vagabonds. Right. And there was like this mm-hmm. just beautiful way in which they were like talking about their relationship yeah. and talking about right the two women. And like, you know, and I feel like we need stories like that, too, right? We need stories where it's like we're outside of the right sort of the straight gaze and outside of like, how do we imagine ourselves as being right if we didn't have all this like things that would like keep getting us getting in the way of like us just being right. And I feel like we've talked about that a lot, maybe mostly in terms of race, but also like other things. But I was kind of like, but yeah, but it's just like, but we also need queer novels like this, right? Because like that is also a reality, right? That is also part of it. And I also love that maybe there was even a range in how Baldwin like thought about and wrote about it. And be, and, and that's actually why that when that other novel was said, because I was like, also maybe he saw more possibilities given just what was happening, right? Even with sort of like right, gay rights and sort of people kind of be more vocal about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess going back to a point about how he didn't necessarily want to define himself. And I'm like, that's so complicated, right? And I think as like somebody who sort of define, you know, who sort of does identify as queer, but I feel like that's like a very like an amorphous term for me right in terms of like what that means and like what that means in terms of like the people you know literally like maybe the people on desire but it's like more a political stance also right and i just feel like i was like yeah like i I don't know like maybe right like maybe it was like partly his own internalized homophobia or he was like being aware of like what size he was like but also maybe he just like right like maybe that is how he thought about himself maybe like i do love like people right right? and like gender isn't like a thing and i want to like allow for all of those possibilities um, well, and so I don't know. Yeah. No, I think I, I I think you're right. And I would add this. I think James Baldwin, if you read his body of work, one thing that I'll jump out to you is that he hates he hates fundamentalism. He hates like absolutism. And he does not like that. He doesn't. He thinks it's bad. And And if you like even from the fire next time, you know, the second essay in that in that book is about the kind of inflexibility and fundamentalism of um, different systems of belief like one is christianity and one is black muslims and 
he's you know there's this his description of having um dinner with elijah muhammad and and understanding why elijah muhammad's message is so powerful because he is talking about a god who's black right but at the end of the dinner you know like they're like talking about all all white people are devils and and james ball was like um i'm going to see some white people right now (laughs) you know (laughs) well that actually comes with a documentary he says that he didn't join like the black muslims or the black panthers because he's like i don't believe that all white people are devils but he's like i didn't join the naacp because they're all just like intra-class right Mm -hmm. stuff happening in that thing so i do think that you know he doesn't like that and i like appreciate that about him right that there is sort of this like pushing back against absolutes yeah well and i i think if i can just say one more thing that just struck me based off of what you said uh, anita and i don't know if i'm right about this but it seems to me like the term queer as we as people use it today can it can be like a an opt-in to something but in a lot of ways it's a resistance or a refusal of something else yep right and i think of that way james Baldwin is definitely queer because he is refusing other people's categories yeah. that he's supposed to fit into, right? Whether it's black people, whether it's white people, whoever it is. Perfect. And yeah. I think mm-hmm. that's something that he really does. He, he really wants to reject. And that's often the sort of source of a lot of his, the tensions in his life, you know, but he wants to say that again. And I think that's, you know, part of what's happening in the, in this book. Right. But we, we see it over time, more characters that more embrace who they are as opposed to are just struggling with could i ever refuse um this way of being that it, that's imposed upon me and be what i want to be be what's most pleasurable what's what gives me the most um joy and i think the politics of refusal is a beautiful place to end <laughs> so let's um thank you james baldwin for your beautiful writing and just sort of letting us speculate about lots of things and talk about it all right, we're going to go around and chat a little bit about what we've been reading, writing, eating, listening, whatever is bringing you joy or some, yeah, what you've been up to. Todd, do you want to start us off? I most certainly can start. Um, I have two things. Uh, first off, I just wanted to say that um, I'm holding up this uh, book book cover. S.A. Cosby has a new book out. It's called My Darkest Prayer. I have not read it yet. I purchased it, but I will be reading it. And uh, I just keep talking about it. I don't like tell the spoilers that we have to read and talk about one of his books, but maybe we will in the future. Who knows? Anita's read one of the books and she, she has thoughts. So, um, and my second thing is I just watched um, the first two episodes of the new Netflix show Beef. Yeah. Um, which is Ali Wong and Steven Yuen, um, which seems amazing so far. Um, and of course it's getting a lot of, uh, great, uh, reviews and great press and everything like that. And I think it's like pretty interesting to have a show that is about, you know, that's basically like all the characters, almost all the characters are Korean American, but there's all, they're very different. Yes. Um, but also that these are about characters really angry, <laughs> angry at the world and like, it's okay. And I kind of like that, you know, because, uh, I really embrace that kind of idea that sometimes you just want to burn it all down and that's all right. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, so far I would recommend it. I've watched, I've watched several of the episodes. I oh, you watch more than me. I watched the whole okay. thing. Yes. You watch the whole thing. Yes. <laughs> yes. Do you agree Anita too? Um, a, I would just say that all the characters are Asian American, not necessarily Korean American. Um, oh, that's true. I'm sorry like, about that. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, 
I feel like it's like one of those shows that I really enjoy, but also it's just like about the depths of just like human awfulness. Yes, it really is. It just gets worse and worse and worse. <laughs> and you're just like, ah. but it's like really compelling. But I'd also just want to note that there's been this whole thing that's come out about one of the actors and this like very problematic statements that he made about uh, sort of like rape culture that he's oh. kind of like taken back and apologized for. It's the guy who plays Isaac. Oh. Um, so also, I was also just like, everybody's a problem. So, you know, there's not. Also, I'm a problem because I was like, thank God I watched that before all that came out. <laughs> yeah. so. Oh, gosh. <laughs> but I love Ali Wong so and Steven yeah. who, yeah, they're, they're really good at it. All right, okay. Crystal. I am, okay, so I'm slowly reading the re-released uh, anthology of uh, essays based on interviews with Claudia Tate and Black Women Writers. It's called Black Women Writers at Work. And so they have interviews by people with uh, by Claudia Tate with people like Audre Lorde and Margaret Washington. And so just uh, all, a lot of black women writers who I kind of grew up reading, but knew nothing mm-hmm. about in terms of their practice and what they thought about writing. This is a, a, oh. an anthology of essays that focuses on that. And so I'm I'm slowly reading it. I started reading the interview with Audre Lorde uh, recently and I just got like a page and a half, but I was like so inspired and touched um to read it because also I think with the um the publication of my book just happening, Ooh. like literally my book <laughs> Yeah it's you know thank you a month <laughs> a month into the world. Even though I've published it before I'll go get it. Oh thank you. I've published before, but I still I just had not taken on the identity as a black woman writer. But then when I begin to think, oh, Crystal, you're a black woman writer. And then I think of the other black women writers and I'm just like, oh, my God, I'm part of a black woman writers collective. You know, it's just it's a, it's a pretty good community to be a part of. Huh? <laughs> yes. And that's what. Yeah. So I was just thinking about that. So I've been reading that. And then I just randomly was listening to um you know, my Apple music, and I came across this jazz artist. She's not new, but she's new to me. Her name is Brandy Younger, and she has a new album out called Brand New Life. And I have just been listening. The The, the, the vibes are just so awesome. And it's some it's some instrumental jazz music and also some um, some singing. And I'm just like, oh, this is, I can work to it. I can like bop to it. It's really nice. So Brandy Younger. Cool brand new life new album that's really great um crystal you said that the book was re-released when did it when did it come out originally oh i'm not sure and i don't have it right in front of me but it may have come out in like the 70s or something and it went out it went out of print you know Mm um 70s or 80s um i can look it up um so one of the books i did read was crystal's amazing book continually working so yes go get it and i think my favorite it's all really good. And I think maybe my favorite chapter, probably because I think it was a chapter maybe I hadn't heard um, about in like talks that you've done, Crystal, was the one about sort of black women fighting for welfare rights. And I just feel like it was like super, you know, really helpful in both kind of like this, right, this point that you make about how like how little we actually read or hear from actually like working class black, like poor women, right? And a lot of it's like written by like middle class women or like, like a lot of the stuff that we read. And so you could have note these two publications that kind of came out and that was actually written by like poor mm-hmm. black women but i also really appreciated this like point that you make and that like comes up a lot in your book is just idea that the women were kind of making an argument that was not about like we you, you don't need to like we don't need to change right as women or as community as families but like we need the resources to be able to like support our family and love our family in the ways that we like we're already doing it and we don't need to like 
change individuals. We need to change structures. And I feel like it's like such a clear message, I think, in that chapter, right? Because I think the women were like making that point really clearly. So yeah. So shout out to you. Shout out to the women. Shout out to the Thank you. Right. So like collective organizing. Um, Thanks to so, yeah, you. That'll be my shout out. Oh, <laughs> like what you should go read. Yeah. Oh. Um, so yeah. So that was, um, yeah. Uh, what's the press again, Crystal? your book oh Vanderbilt Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt. yes sorry I did it my head just went out so yes I haven't read it yet but I know what press it (laughs) and I have I have my copy yes yeah that's true we should do a photo of like Crystal's book copy and just one after we get off but yeah I I need to get mine signed too I wish I I actually got to see Crystal in Chicago like a week ago or something I wish I'd have my book with me yeah I didn't know I was gonna see her when I went when I went there and then I got there I was like man I'm gonna tell Crystal I'm here and she's like, I live a block from your hotel. Yeah. She walked over to my hotel. Exactly. But no spoilers. Got to hang out with yes. me. Yes. <laughs> it was a good time. It was a very good time. No, it was great. Yeah. We miss each other when we're yeah. out in person. It's true. Um, all right, y'all. So go get Crystal's book. Uh, watch Beef, although you should also look up <laughs> Troubling. Uh, <laughs> sort of come out of- I'm making a face right now, like, sorry. Yes, I mean, you know, yeah, it's the world we live in. I don't know. Uh, but our next book is going to be The Sleeping Car Porter by Suzette Mayer. I hope I'm saying that last name um, right. And yeah, we sort of don't really know a lot about it, but we know that it's like set in Canada and it's about this uh, black sleeping car porter of the 1920s. So it should be fun. Um, and, and it's one of the books that's kind of pretty new. So I think we try to kind of do books that are, you know, sort of classics, like the one we just read, and also some new ones that we want to like check out and kind of tell you all about. And as always, you can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, all the places where there are podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. And we're sending big virtual hugs to you. And for those of us in the Midwest, hang in there. Spring will come. The snow is almost melted. <laughs> Yay. That we got this morning. <laughs> but spring is coming. Spring it's is coming. coming. Hold on to that, y'all. Yes. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. You have been listening to another episode of The Drip recorded in St. Paul, Minneapolis, in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. Our show is written, produced, and directed by Anita Chikatura, Crystal Moten, and me, Todd Lawrence. We are the All Spoilers Collective. Our next episode is a special driplet in which Anita and I discuss my fairly recent brush with death and learning to read again. And after that, a full episode on The Sleeping Car Porter, a novel by Canadian writer Suzette Mayer. There's still time to get a copy. And as always, take care of yourselves and each other. Mm-hmm.